are you afraid of? What do you fear? Everyone has fears. Um, I don't know how dated this list is, <clears throat> but one list of top 10 fears that people have list, and I'm just going to go in order from 10 to 1. So number 10 is people fear death. And I found that very interesting that it wasn't number one, right? There are a lot of things apparently people fear more than death. So number 10 is death. Number nine is thunderstorms. So you shouldn't live in Kentucky if you fear number nine. Number eight is cancer, number, which I, that one I understood. Number seven is vomiting. I mean, I really live not wanting to ever vomit, but it doesn't wake me up at night. You know, like, oh, what? I don't have nightmares about it, but you never know. Six is heights. Set five is claustrophobia. Four is open spaces. It'd be really tough to have both of those, right? <laughs> you don't like closed spaces or open spaces. Um, three would be flying. A lot of fear of flying. Number two, public speaking, what I'm doing right now. Um, and number one is spiders, which I very much identify with. Spiders, more than death, cancer, <laughs> thunderstorms, and flying, even more than public speaking. Spiders are a top fear on this particular list. Like I said, it could be dated. But what was also interesting to learn was something that has been whoa, listed as a fear, but it has been added to the American Psychiatric Journal, I don't remember all the acronyms that go with that, a fear to be cured of is the fear of God. It has a name, and it is something that you can get a counselor to help you overcome. But today we're going to talk about the importance of the fear of the Lord. And so as we begin, I just want to do a quick review from last week. A quick review. We talked last week about the book of Proverbs. We talked about the structure and so for those of you who weren't here, we had a really nice handout. Please ask one of your small group leaders for it. They can get it for you. Um, and so the Proverbs is structured in two ways. It's seven collections of sayings, right? There are seven groupings of these Proverbs that are given. Or you can view it as two halves, but they're not equally divided halves. The first half is chapters one through nine. And it really, they really are exhortational poems of a father to his son telling him to choose the way of wisdom, preparing his heart to receive the wisdom and the Proverbs that come in chapters 10 through 31, the second half, if you will. We talked about how the genre that we are studying is wisdom literature, a proverb. Remember, we, I read a really long definition of a proverb, but we kind of settled on describing it in two ways. One, as a parable in, in you know, two lines, a parable that's succinctly stated, like, a gold ring and a pig snout is a beautiful one without discernment. You could probably write a really great little children's parable moral story with that, but you can also get the truth across in those, those two lines very quickly and easily. Another way in the proverb is we use the, the description that it was currency, right? The proverbs are currency, and just like if I gave you money that you didn't have, now you have options for things that you can do that you couldn't do before because of this money. When you get the Proverbs and you understand that wisdom, you now have skills for making life decisions you didn't have before. And then we described the Proverbs and the genre as filling in the gray areas. We said the law in ancient Israel was the lattice work, the framework and the foundation of how Israel lived. So, for example, the law says, do not lie, right? But do not lie doesn't tell you how to give an answer wisely, how to comfort someone who's struggling, when to give a rebuke, and when to give an encouragement. There's a lot about speech that do not lie doesn't cover, right? And there's a lot about you know, do not commit adultery that doesn't explain how to have a biblical relationship or a godly marriage, or do not steal that doesn't tell you how to wisely use your money, right? So the wisdom literature comes in and it fills in the gray areas where most of life is lived. 
We also said that we need to be careful when we're interpreting the Proverbs that there has been, um, as the culture at large views um, Proverbs, because the, the world and all different, um, I'm blanking on the word, but in different countries throughout the world, they all have their different maxims <laughs> and Proverbs that you live by, right? A penny saved is a penny earned, and, and there are general truths to that. But then there's also exceptions. So we treat these as general principles a lot of the time, and that can creep into evangelicalism by treating the Proverbs like probabilities. Well, this may happen and it may not. And part of that's because we'll take the, con the, the proverb in isolation, not in its full context. So you'll take a verse like, commit your ways to the Lord, and he will establish your plans. We looked at this in Proverbs 16 last week. And, you know, we'll, we'll get a little Hobby Lobby sign that says that, and we put it up, and we're like, that's our promise. But we don't read the verses before that say, a man can justify all of his ways, and... Um, and God is in control of all of our circumstances, and the Lord weighs the hearts, and he determines the matter that puts God's sovereignty with our committing of, the, of, our, of our plans to the Lord and gives a fuller picture. <clears throat> so we can't teach, the, teach and view the Proverbs as probabilities. When we do, we set ourselves up for two issues. One, we're saying God is faithful to his word some of the time, right? Or we're saying the Proverbs aren't really fully inspired like the rest of the Bible, right? They're kind of their own category. And we don't want to say either of those things as they're both error. And so we have to look at the Proverbs in their full context. What does is, what is Proverbs, for example, say on parenting? Not just one verse, but what does all of Proverbs teach on parenting? What does all of Proverbs teach on the foolish way and the wise way and on relationships that we're supposed to have with one another? There's t I mean, the book of Proverbs is overflowing with friendships and neighbors and the king to the peasant and the peasant to the, you know, all, all relationships that we encounter in life pretty much can be found in the book of Proverbs, right? And so we have to look at the totality of that, and we have to also remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so how does Proverbs even fit into the context of the rest of Scripture as we look at what it means? So with that quick review, um, we're going to also be talking today about excellence. And I'm going to probably use excellence almost interchangeably with the term wisdom, because as we pursue wisdom, it's really a pursuit of living excellently in all areas of life. And while you can go buy 20 million manuals on how to whatever, you will not find very many books written on excellence. You will not learn, that is something we, have, we are much more maybe utilitarian, like we want to accomplish something in the most efficient way, and, and doing the job good enough is good enough, right? To get as much done as we can. We are not worried as much as a culture about excellence, or if we care about excellence, it's almost like... Um, like a specialty treat, like you get to pay all this extra money to actually get excellence in this product, right? Like this is the boutique that does this really, it becomes almost a specialty product that they would do it excellently that you pay a premium for. Then you can get excellence, right? And I'm not saying that there aren't times excellence legitimately in the business world costs more. To build a building excellently will require better materials. But a lot of times we just kind of treat that as like, you know, the premium, the, instead of living a life that's truly excellent. So with that, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So our first point today is coming from verse 2, and it is to know. 
We need to know. What do we need to know? To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. To know means literally to ingest. It doesn't just mean intellectual assent to something, but to internally and experientially know something. And what are we to know experientially and internally? We're to know wisdom. Um, we're going to go to Hebrew school for just a minute. Wisdom, if you were to look up a Hebrew, um, go to Hebrew Bible dictionary, and you were to look at all the different ways it's used throughout Scripture, which I don't usually get technical with us, but I just thought it would help you understand the breadth and depth to what this word wisdom means. So in Scripture, we're looking at complete right now, like semantic domain. It means technical skill, aptitude, experience, good sense, learning, acquaintance with facts, practical sagacity. I'm going to look that one up, but it means being sage. Skillful and expounding secrets, ability to keep a secret, statesmanship, ability to work with furniture. I think that has to do with building the furniture in the, t in the tabernacle, but I didn't have time to look it up. Moral and religious intelligence, common sense, ability to make a moral decision, ability to avoid morally bad decisions, philosophical speculation, the ability to understand the deep things of life and death. So when he says we are to know internally and experientially wisdom, that is what that word encompasses throughout scripture. We, and so if we were to summarize that word, we are to be mature in every area of life. We're to live excellently in every area of life. It's a big order, right? We are to know. Today, we have knowledge available in, in a crazy, crazy amount. I had my husband, while I was, I was practicing this last night, I said, hey, really quick, just Google Proverbs for me. So we had 89 million hits in 0.6 seconds. 89 million hits on the word proverb in 0.6 seconds, right? And I remember when Google, you probably all remember, when Google wasn't a word, right? I mean, it wasn't a word, like a term that was added to the dictionary. You're going to go Google that. And I remember the first time, like, my kids will never have a comprehension of this. But I remember the first time someone told me to Google it, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. What's Google? And how do I Google it? And where do you go to Google it? And how does that going to help me with the question I just asked you? <laughs> They're like, it's a, it's a search engine. And I was like, and that is? <laughs> I just remember all of that being brand new. But now you Google it. Or, like, I hate Siri. I don't ever turn Siri on. I don't know if I've ever used Siri, but my kids know about Siri. And they ask me a question. If I don't know, they're like, ask Siri. I'm like, you know, that makes me a little bit creepy, right? Like, there's always this, like, other voice you could ask. So it's always turned off in my world. But they just think that you can know anything. But our ability for knowledge, I saw a meme the other day. So what if you traveled back in time? I'm going I'm to goof it up. But you travel back in time was the idea. And you explain to someone that you have this device that has all of the information of all of time available at your fingertips, right? 89 million hits on the word Proverbs. I'm like, what do you do with that? I take selfies and complain. <laughs> right? Like, that's what I do. I take selfies with this wonderful machine, and I post them all the time. And then, you know, say whatever is wrong with my life that day. <laughs> like, and it was, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of pretty much what we're doing with this vast amount of information that we have. Paul Twist, speaking on Proverbs 1, says, we have the what, the knowledge. Now we don't know how to internalize it. It requires discipline. The pursuit of excellence requires discipline, a sustained, steadfast look at this book. It requires laborious hours meditating on God's word to know exactly what he means when he talks about skillful living. Proverbs 22 says the Proverbs should always be on our lips. I almost didn't want to read this quote because I feel like I, I know that in many of the ministries I've been in, we want to avoid any word that makes women feel like they're going to have to work to study the word because then they're not going to show up. And I'm, I know I'm preaching the choir because you're all here, 
But really, I've talked to a million women in, in Bible study leaderships. We can't call it homework, and we can't have it be too long. And, and basically, anything to, to almost trick people into wanting to study God's word, because we can't say that it's actually going to be work. But it is. It's going to be not only work, it's going to be laborious, time-consuming, painstaking work. And it's not going to be the kind of work where you go in and you study your Bible and you've had your quiet time and you like leave with your face glowing like Moses when he left Mount Sinai, right? And there's a halo over your head and everything you do today is blessed with the Midas touch of gold because you studied God's word laboriously. A lot of times it's like, okay, I don't really know what I got from that this day. I mean, sometimes you have those moments, right? And then they like fuel you to the next time it happens. But most of the time it's like, okay, I'm going to have to go back and work even more. I think I'm missing it. I don't think I fully get it. I don't think I'm fully making the connections. It's work, right? And we don't want to work anymore. We want instant gratification. And I feel like the more our world has become, like it's, it's becoming, I see it creeping into my own heart and life all the time, right? Everything is so easy and everything is just available with the press of a button. Somebody said, the only thing you really can't do on the internet anymore is eat. Kind of true. <laughs> but I can order my food and get it delivered with DoorDash, but I can't actually eat on the internet. So I'm like, it's just becoming you know, crazy how easy in one sense our life is, and we don't want to work, but pay attention. As Sarah teaches us the next couple weeks and as we go through Proverbs, the person who wants instant gratification and the person who's promised it and the person who's looking for it in the book of Proverbs is always the fool, every single time. Proverbs 2, 3 through 5 says, If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You have to look and search and dig and work. But what will you get? You will find the knowledge of God. And ladies, there are only two things that go into the next world with us, right? The souls of men and the word of God. What are we going to be investing in that, do, that has internal value and that's going to carry in and it's going to have value for the next billion years in your life. You know, we do so much planning for retirement, so much planning for, I was just talking to my husband, I'm like, Dave's going to go to college in six years. Are we prepared for that? <laughs> I'm not prepared for that. Planning for the next step. But ladies, we literally are going to be existing for eternity and we talk all the time about the 70 or 80 years we get on this life and I'm not, I, we should plan for those things. But do we talk about what you're going to do when you're 105? Because you will be 105. And you will be 200, and you'll be 300, and you'll be 400. Are you planning and investing for that? Right? So we have to be people who know and know wisdom, and we have to work at it. Two, we have to receive, verse three, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Instruction means correction, discipline, rebuke. Right? We don't, <laughs> it means that. We don't live rightly. This book, if you don't want to be confronted, if you don't want to be shown where you need to change, if you don't want, I mean, I, I studied this and I'm like, I don't know if I really want to teach Proverbs. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm like, I think this is going to, like, I always pray that God is first working anything I teach in my own life. And we're covering so much material, I don't in any way mean I've mastered what the things I'm teaching, but that they're being applied and being changed, and I'm being transformed before I say anything to you. And I got really nervous about the book of Proverbs, just thinking, wow, do I want to be corrected at this level? Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, it pierces us. It reminded me when we studied James, just, last, just this fall, right, James chapter 1, and it said, speaking of how do we respond to the word of God, 
I think we don't often think of this verse in the context it's in, but it says, in response to the word of God, we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We need to hear the word of God quickly. We need to not be full of our own opinions about it. We need to be accurate about it. And we can't be angry when it's confronting us. We need to be humbly submissive to it, right? So as we come to this book, we have to be those who want to receive correction. And to do that, we have to be humble. We have to realize that we have to be wise enough to know we're not wise enough, right? We have to be humble enough to know we need to know more. And we talked last week about how Solomon was a negative example because you know, he was the author of many of these Proverbs, but his life didn't live them out very well. But he started out well. He started out humble, crying out to God saying, I'm young and I don't know how to lead this people and I need wisdom to know how to lead your people, God. And God gave it to him. And as he grew in wisdom and wealth and might, he became proud in his heart and he turned from the wisdom he was given. Pride is the enemy to all learning and instruction, and humility is the key. In fact, the term that we're going to come to at the end of the verse, the fear of the Lord, it's parallel with humility. In fact, in Proverbs 15.3, fear of the Lord is actually translated as humility. They're almost interchangeable terms. Um, so we have to be humble people. And throughout the Proverbs, we're going to see that a humble person is always receiving instruction. The, the son is going to be called upon to do it over and over and over again, right? And we're going to be called to listen to wisdom's call and to ignore the foolish and the evil men. We're going to be called to be wise friends and to be a wise wife and to be a wise brother, sister, um, person. lots of ways that we're in the community that talks about. And so we have to be humble. Proverbs 18.1 says, though, that the fool will isolate himself and rage against all sound judgment. If you don't want instruction, you're going to pull away from this. You're not going to isolate yourself from the word of God, from the community of God, from anything that's going to confront you. And when truth comes your way, you rage out against it, right? The isolated man, that's the picture. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we learners or are we experts? Do we think we've mastered it all? Do we think we know it all? Are we those who are going to learn? Are we those who can submit to the teaching of others, submit to the teaching of the Lord? But wisdom that we receive doesn't just impact us. These words right here, not, um, to, to receive instruction in wise dealings in righteousness, justice, and equity, throughout the Old Testament, those are terms that talk about community living. Wisdom always meets us in relationships. The book of Proverbs is dripping with relationships. I, I'm trying to think of a relationship that's not covered in the book, right? How you interact with the the bank, the money lender, to how you interact with the king, to how you interact with your spouse, to how you interact with your kids, to how you interact with your neighbor, to the judge. <laughs> like, it's everywhere. It's relational. And wisdom that we receive is supposed to impact the community in righteousness, in justice, and in equity. Again, Paul Twist says, the pursuit of wisdom is a joint community endeavor. So when the community comes together, and especially remember this is an Old Testament book and it's written to the people of Israel, and they did come together often as a nation to receive instruction and to worship at their festivals and you know, remember the context we're, we're learning this in. We, we are supposed to learn wisdom and then it's supposed to be applied to the benefits for others. When the community gathers, you show up and you show up with the belief that you have something to learn. You seek to live to profit others. If we are to pursue excellence, we must be marked with relational humility. This is, again, the, the, who's the isolated person? The fool, Proverbs 18 says. Uh, this, the wisdom needs to impact the church and our families and every sphere of influence that we have in our community. 
The third point is that we are, so we were to know, to receive, and now we are, oh, I want to say one more point about this. Sorry, I saw my notes, but going back to the humility. Another thing that we need to consider, and I think it's particularly apt for us to be aware of for the next generation, is are you sensitive? Because pride shows up in sensitivity. Sensitivity is a form of pride. And we have a generation coming up that in most of my interactions with them, they will sacrifice truth for what is kind. A true thing will be said and it will not be packaged the way that they want it packaged and they reject it. And they don't even bother having the debate about if it was true or not. The person is vilified for how unkind, I mean, I think there's a lot of subjectivity about even the kindness or lack of kindness, but in their perception, it was unkind, right? I know people, I, I remember one time hearing, I'm not going to say his name, but I remember hearing, well, he wrote this really unkind review of this wonderful book by a Christian, and so I'm not going to even follow this guy anymore, this godly Christian. I went back and read his review, and I'm like, I couldn't find a harsh word in it. And that we're, we're that sensitive. Like, that just if we disagree on or say, I might consider this from a different perspective. Well, you're intolerant and mean. It's showing up, uh, not to be political, but abortion is not a political issue. It's life and death, and there's a holocaust happening in our nation. And I know believers who will vote for a pro-abortion candidate because they're nice. Because they're nice. It's not nice to murder babies. But that's not the point. They'll even look at me and say, it's really not a one-issue deal. Really? Would you tell that to a Jew in Nazi Holocaust? It's not a one-issue deal? I think sometimes we forget about the eternity that we're facing, too. Right? Because I know there's some debate, but I've been convinced through Scripture that babies go to heaven. So we're going to be spending eternity with these people because they're people. Right? We care. Are we sensitive? We have to care more. And, and Scripture is going to confront you. It's not worried about your sensitivity. Christ called people hypocrites and fools, and so does the book of Proverbs, right? And I think today, if Christ showed up, he wouldn't be welcome in many of our churches because we don't use that kind of language, right? I think that we really have got to be careful about how pride shows up. Kevin DeYoung says, pride is the sin with a thousand faces. It doesn't show up one way. So we have to be really on guard for it in our life. So with that, we need to receive, and now we need to give. We need to give. Verse, I believe it's in verse 4, to give, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So now it's turning a little bit. He's been talking to the young. You need to know. You need to receive. You need to be wisdom. You need to be humble to receive it. But now there are those who need to be giving the wisdom. The simple person here is not the fool. It's the naive, inexperienced person. It's the young, immature person. And there is a moral responsibility that Solomon is pointing out that the mature have and the strong person has to give instruction to the simple person. Again, this doesn't mean you're, you're foolish. It's a young, inexperienced naivety, right? And these people can be trained. And these people are malleable. And they're easily influenced. And it says that you are to give them, give them prudence and you're to give them knowledge and discretion. And that, has, that shows up in a lot of different ways. But the first thing I'm going to say is it's more caught than taught. If you really want to influence the next generation, you have to be available. You have to be living life on life. You have to be seeking relationships where your home is open and people can be part of your life and you can be part of their life. I loved, um, I showed up one time to a, a basketball game and Carl and Virginia were sitting there. I, 
I can't remember why I was there, but um, it was one of the paying kids was playing on the team. And Heather told me that Carl and Virginia come to all their games. Do you know that Carl and Virginia will be able to speak into the paying kids' life in a way that people who don't show up their games will never be able to, right? When you show up and when you're involved and when you live life with them, you have a voice. You have, and just how you are and just how you live will be caught. And we're living very isolated lives where we don't make it a priority to show hospitality and to have our homes and lives open and to live life on life. But if we, we are called to impact this next generation. As I was doing this, I listened to a pastor on this subject, and he asked a bunch of questions that I found very convicting personally, so I'm going to pass them on to you. Um, but he said, the first question, he says, what influence do you have in your church and your family and your friends? Are you influencing people? And if you're influencing them, how are you influencing them? The second question he asks is, is anyone benefiting from your church membership? Are you a consumer? Or are you laying down your life for the body of Christ? Because Christ gave his life for the body. But many of us are consumers. And we look for the church to meet our needs or to fit into our schedule or to work with us instead of us laying down our lives and prioritizing the church. Is anyone in the church benefiting from your membership? We have a responsibility to give to the next generation, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. It's not an optional thing. And, and I have seen over and over and over again the older women and the older generation failing to reach out to the young, and, and, and there's a failure on both sides, but I know more young women who have asked older women to disciple them and be told they can't do it to the point that the women are discouraged and are like, there's no older woman who will give me time. I'm not going to do it. And a lot of the older women are like, well, I'm too busy with my own family. We are family. The body of Christ is family. And you are called to serve and invest in others. And not every saved, we don't all get saved in perfect Christian packages. So you could be a daughter who has no saved mother, father, grandmother, and there needs to be older women in the church who are going to make them a priority and part of their family. Right? So then point four is that we need to persevere. So we need to know, we need to receive, we need to give, and we need to persevere. Verse 5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddle. Who do you think the book of Proverbs is written to? To the fool? To the child? To the nation? It's written to the wise. Let the wise hear and increase. The fool is not benefited from this book. The fool is not opening this book to read it right? It's to the wise and to those who want to be wise. And Solomon has a word to his son and to the wise. He says, let the wise increase in their learning. This is a call to persevere. Son, you can see the scene. Solomon's talking to Rehoboam. Son, you're going to be the king. When you become the king, you're going to have a lot more responsibilities than when you're the prince, right? And there's going to be a lot of things coming at you as you're ruling a nation. And a lot of things are going to slide down the priority list and get shuffled around. But here's what you keep at the top of the list, and here's what you keep of foremost importance. You have to keep the pursuit of wisdom your foremost responsibility. The pursuit of excellence. Going back to knowing God and knowing his word and changing and being Christ-like is work, but it produces treasure. You know when there was the gold rushes back um, in the 18, 1849, I think it was? Like, 
300,000 plus people rushed to California. <laughs> Especially when you think back then, you know, it's not like they could hop on a plane and get to California. <laughs> like the hard work it took them to get to California. And they lived in these mining camps where um, I read one report that you would buy an egg for $3, which was equivalent to $80 today. Can you imagine buying an $80 egg? <laughs> and they're doing this because they're expecting, like, you would have made probably a lot of gold if you just saved money for buying in the mining camps, right? Flour was something like $340-something dollars. I can't remember, like, a pound. I mean, it was crazy inflation in these mining camps that would pop, over, pop up as the, the, the wise person was saying, I'm not going to dig for the gold. I'm going to feed the miners. <laughs> I'm going to charge them premium to do it. Somebody got rich, but... All of that to say, as they, they, they were willing to pay exorbitant fees they were to eat. They were willing to sacrifice everything to go out in the hope that maybe they'd get gold, right? But we have something that is sure and that is lasting and that's eternal, right? And we don't want to work for it. Again, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, but I'm hoping that as we take this and we all become disciplers and apply it, that this is something we're encouraging other women to not be afraid to do. Um, and, not, and, to, and to value. So he says, you have to pursue it and you can't be complacent. Ladies, no one sets out to ruin their life, right? No one sets out to end, end their life at 400 pounds overweight. No one sets out to get divorced or have an affair. No one sets out to live in great credit card debt. That's not what we plan to do, right? But if you don't choose to live wisely, to be confronted by this book and to be someone who's teachable, you will make foolish decision. And not necessarily a sinful decision, but a foolish decision. That'll lead to another foolish decision. It will eventually lead to patterns that will eventually lead to sin and a hardened heart. We have to be people who don't become complacent. Like, oh, I've learned this. Even our devotions, it's our daily bread. You know, I don't ever wake up and think, well, I ate yesterday, I don't have to eat today. Right? <laughs> I, you need it sustenance all the time. You need it every day. And folly, as we said, we're going to keep saying this, promises that immediate gratification, but we want to be people who are looking for true and lasting gratification, right? And wisdom will persevere. Wisdom will give to the next generation. Wisdom will invest to show them that life is more than just the do nots. <laughs> do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery. But it will look at someone and explain how you use a credit card and a debit card and what's the difference and how you use it to the glory of God. Because you can. And it will explain to them how you pursue your academic studies for the glory of God. It'll talk to them about what a righteous relationship looks like. And it will talk to them about how you serve in the local body and how you plug in so that you have safety nets around you, right? So that when you start going to the left or the right, someone goes, whoa, where are you going, Katie? Why? That's not the path, right? And you have people who will rein you in and call you out because you're living in community, not isolating yourself. So that brings us to point five, to fear. To know was one, to receive was point two, to give was point three, to persevere, point four and point five, and our final point is to fear. And we talked about this last week, what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord in its simplest form is to submit to his commands. And the book makes it very clear that only those who submit to God's plans only those who fear the Lord and submit to his word are those who will be benefited by this book. If you are not that person, this book will do nothing for you. It will be in one ear and out the other. And we talked about how it has the fear of the Lord is active and not passive last week, right? That you can have two Christians who get a paycheck and one thinks about how they use their money to the glory and honor of God and how all of it's going to be spent and one doesn't. 
And it might not even look different how the money ends up being spent. But the intentionality to take it before the Lord and to look at his principles will make the life of the intentional person over time look incredibly different than the person who's just living. You can be a Christian and be a clumsy Christian and not live excellently. Waltke, Bruce Waltke in his commentary writes, the fear of God, which is separate than the fear of the Lord, by the way, the fear of God refers to a standard of moral conduct that is known and accepted by men in general and motivates people to right conduct even when a state does not enforce moral sanctions. So in general, we don't go around murdering each other. And yes, there are moral sanctions in our nation for that, but there, there's a, God has put his conscience on our heart. And in just about every society and every culture, you can find some universal stealing is wrong, murder is wrong, universal laws that every na nation and culture pretty much agrees on. And would agree on even if it wasn't enforced. But the fear of the Lord, by comparison and contrast, refers to the Lord's special revelations. That's the Bible. It refers to the Lord's special revelations. By this term, Solomon traces his wisdom back to the Lord's inspiration. Fear of the Lord entails an emotional response of fear, love, and trust. But fear of the Lord also, if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, means love for the Lord. Deuteronomy treats love of the Lord and fear of the Lord as synonyms. The fear of the Lord is found through heartfelt prayer and the diligent seeking for the sage's words. If you want to fear the Lord, you have to seek him in his word. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work to illuminate his word toward, to you. And then it's all interconnected, right? Fear of the Lord is a synonym with humility. Fear of the Lord is a synonym with the, the love of the, to love the Lord, right? So if we love, and, just, and then you think, oh, this is where the book of 1 John came from. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you'll love me, right? It's all here. If you love God, it will show itself in your actions. If you're obeying him, you're being humble underneath his word. If you're humble underneath his word, you fear him. And if you fear him, you love him. It's all a package interconnected deal. If you want to say you love God, you have to fear him and be humble under his word. Elizabeth Elliot writes, ancient writers saw the fear of the Lord as conductive to inner health. It is a lamp in a dark place. It illuminates and teaches. It consumes malice and burns wrong thoughts. And then again, I said last week that we need to constantly be looking forward to our Savior. Solomon didn't have the New Testament, right, when he was writing the book of Proverbs. But 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Colossians 2, 1 through 3 says... Um, that he wanted, that he's talking about the church in Laodicea, that he wants their hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is all wisdom and knowledge. As you think about his life and how he answered every person in every situation with perfect skill, but also think that he went to the cross and he suffered and he died in perfect wisdom. Do we always think of wisdom when we think of the cross? There's actually a great song about it. Um, but maybe we'll have Heather sing for us next week. But Christ went and suffered in wisdom. And then I love that this is a book that though it's for all of us, that it is kind of oriented as a father to a son. Because as I'm teaching, because so, so much of this is simple childlike faith right? It, it's, it, life is complex, but there's also simple truths 
that guide and direct all of it. And right now, I'm teaching my kindergartners and my boys at night a song I learned in Sunday school. You probably all know it, the obedience song. It says, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. The second verse says, we want to live pure. We want to live clean. We want to do our best. Sweetly submitting to authority, leaving to God the rest. Walking in the light, keeping our attitude right on the narrow way. For if we believe the word we receive, we always will obey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for how it is already challenging me and convicting me. I pray that you would be with us and help us be women who hunger for the word and who desire to do the hard work and to go deep into the mind of scripture and to have an eternal reward that we were planning for when we're 500 and 1,000 for for the eternity that you've given us in the time we spend in the book of Proverbs. And I pray that it would meet us in the community and it would impact our homes and our church and every sphere of influence that we have. And I pray that we'd be women who obey. And I pray that you'd be with Sarah as she teaches next week, as she's coming to present the two paths, wisdom and folly before us, that it would be a clear picture and you give us a great love for wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.